So we're going to read two passages, a wee bit long, but bear with. Um, first from Exodus chapter 13, and we're going to read there from verse 17 through to chapter 14, verse 22. So it's the account of uh, the Exodus. So Exodus 13, and reading there from verse 17. And then after that, um, I've lost sight of her. Lauren is going to appear from somewhere. There she's over there. And she's going to read from Acts chapter 12. So Exodus 13 and 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road towards the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pihahiroth, between Migdol and the sea. They are to camp by the sea, directly opposite Baal Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the, that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pihahiroth, opposite Baal Zephon. As Pharaoh approached the Israelites, looked up. And there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm. And you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, 
And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Amen. And so we're going to hear Acts 12 now, read by Lorna. So Acts 12, verses 1 to 19. Peter's miraculous escape from prison. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to the guard to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So, Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter in the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. He passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent the, his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda, Rhonda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was overjoyed. She ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, 
They were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter after Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Amen and praise to God, his glorious word. I had an interesting lunch yesterday with some folks from another church. I'm on a committee that's involved with helping another church that's newly planted, or not that new now, but anyway, it doesn't matter. The detail is irrelevant. We find ourselves over the course of lunch discussing angel stories, discussing stories of encounters that people had had where they wondered if perhaps that person that appeared apparently from nowhere came to their aid or their rescue in a difficult situation and then was nowhere to be seen uh, just a moments after the urgency was passed might well have been an angel. I'm not going to tell you all the details of the stories. It's not the point. I also had a conversation earlier on this week with a young student who was <coughs> excuse me, speaking about his struggles with his faith uh, in a world and in a society where there is, let's be honest, a dearth of reliable leadership. Hard to see the signs of what is reliable or dependable in our world. Hard to see where a trustworthy God is uh, evidenced in the world uh, that, we, that we live in. I'm old enough to remember a time when we were more cohesive as a nation, where there was more of a sense of people in power having a sense not just of responsibility, but of uh, stewardship, of perhaps a, a sense of, of being answerable to a higher power. And yet now we're in a climate, and we hear it particularly in pre-election fever, of everyone for themselves. Now, everybody obviously is endeavoring to do what they believe to be right for the country and for the future of the country. But not just in politics, in all manner of other ways. We are in uh, a phase in life, I venture to suggest, where the, the triumph of the individual uh, seems to reign supreme above everything else. What I want. Of course, there's nothing new under the sun we look back in the book of Judges and find there a time fairly early on after the Israelites arrived in the promised land, where the glory days and the euphoria and the excitement of arriving in this land the Lord was giving them gave way to a time of lawlessness. And we read there more than once in that book there was no king in Israel, and everyone did as they saw fit in their own eyes. This is the first Sunday in Advent, and as much as uh, this, the Advent season is a season of, of light and excitement, of anticipation, of looking forward with, uh, well, once all the work's out the way, uh, some sort of expectation of celebration with family or with friends, for some people, 
course, Christmas is not a happy time for everyone. We know that. But I want to invite you to think about these two passages with me today. Advent is from a Latin word that means coming towards. Coming towards. And so we're coming towards the time when we remember and celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world. But the context of Jesus coming into the world, as, as, as well we know, was not one that was surrounded with uh, baubles and trinkets, with gift wrap and pleasantries, with uh, indulgent overeating or all the other festivities that we've come to associate with Christmas. I know you know this. But Advent really is a season where we're coming towards the time where God came amongst us and came amongst us in the place of our need, of our oppression, of our slavery. When God came, at the time that He came, He came, of course, when uh, Israel was under Roman occupation. There was much uh, unrest and dissatisfaction. The Roman measures of controlling the people of Israel were hard, uh, were heavy-handed and brutal. Taxation was a burden on ordinary people, and the Israelites did not understand how, if they were God's chosen people, they had come to be under the oppressive rule of a Gentile power, a foreign power. But it is the story of salvation. The story of salvation is the story of a God who in this age will not make everything wonderful or glorious, but who invites us on a journey. We journey in Advent towards the time when we will celebrate Jesus' coming. But Jesus' coming was in itself another stage, the beginning of a journey, the destination of which is the freedom and the liberation of all of God's believing people. Freedom from the burden of our sin and its judgment, but freedom, freedom from the wearying things of this world that lead that young man to conclude that he doesn't know if he can trust God when there are so few signs of trustworthy leadership in the world. The people of Israel cried out in their slavery. And last week when I was talking about my trip to South Asia to visit the work of IJM there, we thought about God's call to Moses to go and be a voice of justice to the authorities to say, let my people go. And here we come as we move into Advent to a later part of that release story. Because it's not just people in bonded labor or who are trafficked into prostitution. It's all of us who are in slavery and captivity. And certainly the Israelites who became a nation in Egypt had never known what it was to be truly free. Perhaps in the early days when Joseph's growing family 
under the uh, privileged favor of Pharaoh, whom Joseph had served well, and they were given the land of Goshen uh, in, in Egypt to multiply in. But of course, we know that time passed, and memories are short, and a people that were welcome guests suddenly became a threat and were forced into slavery. And the people of Israel had become a nation without ever knowing what it was to be truly free. They'd never really known what it was to be truly free. And there are lots of people that we might point to in the world and say they have never really known what it is to be truly free. But I think it might be fair to say for all of us, we don't know what it is to be truly free. Even despite the fact that we are rich and privileged in the West relative to millions, billions of people in the world, we don't know fully what it is to be truly free. To be free to enter into our inheritance as sons and daughters of the living God, still the clutches of the past, the voices from before, the expectations of society, the words that run round our own heads. There are a whole manner of ways in which things we do or think, things we were taught or expectations that other people have put on us limit the freedom that God has called us to. And the Israelites cried out in their slavery because they didn't yet know their God. They just knew there had to be something better than this. And so for all of us, we are on a journey towards a freedom, the fullness and the realization of which we can barely imagine. You know, you can read the last chapter of the book of Revelation and sense your heart soar with anticipation of a time when there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, when there will be no more fear when there will be no more cynicism or doubt, no more mistrust, where we'll be invited into a world and a climate where the very air that we breathe will be rich with love and security, peace, plenty, blessing. See, we're on a journey towards freedom. And the journey that the people of Israel were about to embark on was a whole new experience. They were at the beginning. And their road to freedom was not without its dangers. There was danger in the world that they lived in, and there was danger in the getting out of it. They'd been in Egypt when these plagues broke out, mainly against the Egyptians. But of course, the backlash from the Egyptians against the Israelites because everybody who's upset or distressed by events around them will kick the cat. They will find a way of taking it out on the person who is beneath them. And so the Israelites were not immune from the backlash of the Egyptians in their distress. And even when the Passover had been instituted and the final plague on the firstborn took place, so that Pharaoh, who lost his own firstborn son, finally defeated a broken man, said to Moses, take your people and go. Still, Pharaoh 
had a change of heart when he came to and realized they'd lost the valuable workforce that they'd exploited and sent their people, sent his soldiers to pursue them. The Israelites did not know their God. Abraham had encountered God and made a journey on the strength of that encounter. Moses had met with God in a burning bush. But the Israelites as a people had been chosen and grown by a God that they themselves did not yet know, except through Moses and Aaron's experience. Who shall I say has sent me, Moses asked. And so the people of Israel saw signs, plagues, a pillar of cloud and fire, a parting of the Red Sea, all dramatic, but no personal encounter. And we see through a glass darkly. And as we journey through our world with its darknesses and uncertainties and the things that make us anxious and afraid, we walk by faith, trusting in the God who has revealed Himself to us in the person of Jesus. Advent invites us to journey towards the celebration of our liberator. God called His people out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I have called my son. We read in Matthew's gospel after Jesus fled there, or rather after Mary and Joseph fled there with the infant Jesus to avoid a king determined to kill babies. Just as Pharaoh had killed babies back in the days of the Exodus, instructing that the boys be chucked into the Nile, Satan doing the best that he could to destroy the coming liberator, Moses. Satan doing all that he could as the children of Bethlehem were put to the sword to destroy the coming liberator. All of this freedom, this coming freedom, takes place against a backdrop of uncertainty, of signs of God's activity. The people of the Exodus had the sign of a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud. I cannot imagine what that was like. I mean, you know, we've all seen the Prince of Egypt, right? So that's what we think of. But I don't know what that pillar of fire looked like. All I know is that in the midst of a world of slavery and uncertainty, of having heard of God but not fully knowing Him, of crying out to God for rescue, God gave a sign which was light breaking into darkness. Pillar of cloud by day in a world, presumably, where there was less cloud generally, and clouds don't stack up in pillars normally. The pillar of fire by night. Light in the darkness. 
this incredible sign of the presence of God in the middle of a world where everything seemed fearful and oppressive. And in the midst of your world, and I don't know what's going on in your world just now, and it may be that there are all sorts of fearful uncertainties, and it may be that there are all sorts of ways in which you yourself feel or perceive yourself trapped somehow in some kind of uh, slavery or enslavement, know that God knows your name, hears your cry, and that light has pierced and penetrated the darkness, and that the darkness has not overcome it, nor will overcome it. This is a picture of a people in the blackness and the bleakness of slavery, of uncertainty about God and where He was, and Moses had met with Him, but should we trust this fellow? Should we trust Him when He leads us out and makes us a sitting target? And sign after sign, in the nick of time, a moment, an action, and suddenly a spectacular parting of the Red Sea and a rescue. And Jesus, as a newborn baby in a world of oppression, in a world with an enemy power in charge, in a world with a jealous king, a puppet king, in all of that, there was the uncertainty, the possibility of destruction, of death. And yet, the light shines in the darkness. Me and I were reading the story of Peter's escape from prison the other day when we gathered to pray. The story of Peter put in jail that Lorna read for us today. It's not the story of a nation enslaved. It's the story of an individual. It's a very different time period. It's a very different phase. But if I was Peter, I would be feeling no less the gathering of darkness than the people of Israel did in their slavery. I would be aware that I was in prison pending execution. I would be aware that James, one of my two closest friends in that band of disciples, had on a whim just been put to death by the sword. I would be aware that the reason I was being kept in jail was that I was next in line. And that if God if the risen Jesus had not intervened to prevent James from being put to death by the sword, it's hard to imagine that Peter was in those chains in the prison with an expectation that he was different and would certainly be rescued. And therefore, we can assume that Peter was in that prison cell thinking this was his last night, that this was the moment when it was all over 
And that whatever Jesus had said about building His church upon this rock, whatever He had uh, tasked them with about feeding lambs and sheep and so on in that breakfast encounter on the shore of Galilee, that whatever Jesus had decided He was going to use Peter for must already have been concluded, because the next thing that was going to happen was an execution. Eleventh hour darkness. And so there he is, guarded by four squads of four soldiers. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. There's a bit of a theme. The Israelites cried out in their slavery, and God heard their cry. The church cried out for Peter, and God heard their cry. And we have this incredible story of Peter suddenly finding a light shining in his darkness, a light which illuminated the cell, and the angel, without tender ceremony, belts him on the side and says, get up. I was speculating with May the other night at what the urgency was. I mean, if an angel can cause the chains to fall off, if an angel can put the guards into a stupor, if the angel can cause the prison gates to swing open and the city gate to swing open, if nothing, it seems, is beyond the power of this angel to get Peter out, then why did he say, quick, get up? What was the hurry? And the only thing I can think of, and I might be wrong, and it's just my opinion, is that the church was praying to God for Peter. And we know because we read elsewhere, for instance, in the book of Daniel, that the intercession of God's people will allow God windows of opening and opportunity to do things. The angel that finally came to Daniel had been fought off for 21 days before he could come and bring an answer. There's a cosmic battle in which prayer is the power and the force. And I wonder, and I have no evidence for this other than just wondering why the angel said, quick, whether it was the power of the church's prayer that was sufficient to open a window of opportunity for an angel, but that that window could just as easily close again, and there was time-limited opportunity here. God hears the cry of His people, and there are moments and windows where God steps in and breaks through, an angel appearing to a young woman in Nazareth, an angel appearing to Joseph in a dream, a moment at the birth of angels breaking through into earthly sight in a multitude a star and the workings of the Holy Spirit upon three foreigners, or maybe more, who traveled a long way. God breaking in to a world which otherwise was in virtual total darkness, and yet breaking in sufficiently to do what He needs and needed to do. And so, Peter 
experiencing the whole thing as some kind of out-of-body experience, or so it seems he thought he was having a vision, as if he was watching this stuff happen to him, finds himself after walking down one street on his own. His angel disappeared, just as it seems these meetings with strangers that me and my friends were discussing yesterday also experienced where God broke through in a moment. God breaks through in moments in our lives. The light shines in the darkness. There will be a pillar of fire or cloud, a sign, a parting of the way of the sea to make a way. But most of the time, we're invited and called to walk by faith and not by sight to walk in the truth of what we've seen and known and experienced, and to know that just as Jesus broke through, so the power of Herod to kill him was thwarted. And just as God had called His people out of Egypt into the promised land, so God made of Jesus a sign of a new Israel, sending Him to Egypt in order to call Him out of there again. A new Israel, a Moses, and God in Jesus breaking in. And after wrestling with the devil, after his baptism in the 40 days in the wilderness in temptation, having uh, wrestled and defeated his foe to the ground, Jesus then began to advance the kingdom with signs and miracles and teaching. See, it's what God does. He wrestles down the enemy, and then He makes a way for His kingdom to advance, for the light to pierce the darkness. There are many enemies in our lives. Some of them we've let in ourselves. Some of them we hold on to because we're still believing old things and haven't allowed new things to change the way we think or what we believe. Some of them are around us because we live in a hostile world. It's the territory of the prince of this world, right? That's how Jesus describes Satan, the prince of this world. But what is it we are expecting? What is it that we are coming towards? It's freedom. It's the fullness of what we've glimpsed and been promised. It's an inheritance that is unfolding. Our salvation is closer now than on the day we first believed. So do not lose heart or lose hope. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That was Peter's experience. The God who in Christ fought His way all the way through to the final showdown with the powers of principalities of darkness, to the place where on the cross He took on the worst that evil and suffering and slavery might throw at Him, all the way into death itself, and then spectacularly broke it asunder to open the way to freedom which can never again be closed.
The parting of the Red Sea is a prophetic picture of Jesus' death and resurrection, an opening of a way, an invitation to a journey which for the people of Israel was through the wilderness, and for us is through this life, (laughs) because this life is a wilderness experience. It has its joys, its encouragements. It has all manner of wonderful things in it, but compared to what will be, it's a wilderness. And we're invited to walk by faith, not expect everything in the garden to be rosy, and know that the end and the climax of our journey is the fulfillment of the freedom which God in Christ broke open upon the cross. So, we're going to think about freedom and our journey to freedom over Advent, and we begin at the beginning, where God first set His people free in order that He might out of them bring forth a liberator, in order that He might open a way, not through a sea, but through death itself, and in order that He might challenge and encourage you to believe that despite the struggles and the challenges, the challenges of this world, God is for you and not against you. He heard the cry of the people. He heard the cry of His church. He hears the cry of those who call upon Him. And sometimes just in the nick of time, and sometimes just enough, a pillar of fire for a season, a light shining in a cell for illumination, a breaking in of light or rescue somehow to make your chains fall off, and then the charge to go and carry on walking in the light of what you've seen and known and heard and believed and received and experienced. We're on a journey. We're not there yet. Keep going. 